You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sweden in Focus. We are recording this on Thursday the 17th of November. And as always these days, there is a lot to talk about. We've got a major spy scandal involving two brothers. We'll discuss new information about how close to collapse the negotiations were to form a new government. We'll look at why Sweden doesn't gather data on race and ethnicity, like many other countries, and whether it should change its approach. And finally, we'll end with a short quiz on Swedish culture and society to keep everyone on their toes. I'm Paul Omani and I'm joined today in Stockholm by James Savage and in Malmö by Richard Orange, Becky Waterton and Sayaka Usanami Turngrain, who is Associate Professor in International Migration and Ethnic Relations at Malmö University. How is everyone? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. It started snowing in Stockholm this morning, so that was fun. It did snow in Stockholm this morning. I was on my bike. Uh, so when I arrived at the, the studio, my glasses were covered in snow and uh, somebody was kind of staring at me and I didn't realise why until I went and looked in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to give anyone the impression it's a winter wonderland here, though it's all melted away. It's all melted away really quickly. Um, Sayaka, thank you for joining us. We're going to talk to you later about Sweden's approach to statistics on race and ethnicity and what the research says there. But first of all, could you please tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, uh, thank you for inviting me here. I'm Sayaka, as Paul introduced me. Um, I'm a full-time researcher at the Institute, uh, Malmö Institute for Studies of Migration, Diversity and Welfare. And I do a lot of research on racism, discrimination, inclusion, diversity and representation. Yeah, and I'm originally from Japan, if you're curious. I think you're the first person from Japan we've had in the podcast, so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for that, Sayaka. Okay, so the FIFA Men's World Cup kicks off in Qatar this weekend. And to say it was a controversial choice of host nation would be an understatement. Sweden did not qualify, but we know that a lot of listeners will be tuning in. And we've had some members ask us where they can watch the games. What can you tell us, Becky? It's a little bit complicated. There's going to be 64 games in this World Cup. And in Sweden, the coverage of the World Cup is split between two broadcasters who are taking 32 games each. So SVT is one of the broadcasters. That's free to watch public broadcaster. So those games you'll be able to watch live on TV. You'll be able to stream them live and you'll be able to stream them after the games for free, completely free. The other 32 games, which also includes the final and the first match, are on TV4. They're the same company, TV4 and Seymour. So if you are watching the games live on TV, as in through kind of an aerial, a TV aerial, 
not through like an Apple TV or some kind of streaming app service, then you can watch them for free. But if you're watching it via the internet, even if it's live or, or streaming later, then you'll have to pay for it through Seymour. James, you're a big fan. You'll be watching all the games. <laughs> I, I would love to say that I'm boycotting the World Cup out of principle because of Qatar's treatment of LGBTQ people and migrant workers and their way that they allegedly bribed themselves to getting the World Cup. But to be perfectly frank, I wouldn't have watched it anyway. So there we are. I mean, I probably would have watched a few matches, but like, I'm going to specifically not do that now. For me, sort of either England or Sweden has to either get to like the quarterfinals, then I may be watching match. Sweden's not Otherwise, even qualified. I'm absolutely not into. Oh, really? Yeah, See, exactly. That's how little I know. I know absolutely nothing about football. Yeah. But the only Scandinavian country that's qualified is Denmark. I know that Japan have qualified. Are you interested, Sayaka? Um, I have a husband who watches soccer all the time, so probably it's going to be on TV, but I'm not sure if I'm going to follow it. As I mentioned, we're recording on Thursday and tonight the award ceremony for Stora Journalistpriset is being held in Stockholm. It's Sweden's biggest journalism prize and one of the nominees in the innovation category is the investigative news service Blankspot, whose project Cards of Qatar tells the story of some of the migrant workers who died in Qatar while getting the country ready for the World Cup. And the stories are told in a football card format, but instead of information about players, we get the personal stories of people who left countries like India, Bangladesh and Nepal but never returned. You can find the project at cardsofqatar.com and the physical cards are also available in some press bureau stores if anyone wants to pick them up there. We've had a massive spy scandal in Sweden that broke a few days ago. Two Swedish-Iranian brothers are alleged to have leaked information to Russian security services over a 10-year period. What do we know about this so far, James? It is the most incredible spy story. It's a, a huge scandal. So these brothers, they're called Payman Kia and Payam Kia, aged 42 and 35 respectively. Now, Payman worked for Serpo, the Swedish security police, and during a period he worked for the military intelligence agency, MUST, and their special office for special information gathering, KSI as it's called in Swedish. And this is a secret branch of the intelligence services that's so secret that we don't even know the name of the head of this branch. So he got right into the core of Sweden's intelligence services. And he, and he was working within in secret security roles for this 10-year period. At the end of his time, just before he was arrested, he was working for the for Livsmedelsverket, which is responsible for food, including food security and um, planning for what would happen in the event that Sweden was subjected to an invasion, for example. Mm. So there was a, he was working in, in really high security roles. He and his brother were working together to pass secrets to Russia, to the GRU, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency. Among the things that we know that he got access to was a, a list of Serpo's entire staff that was emailed to him and, and, and lots of other information that he would have got during this time, he, um, information about Swe- Swedish, um, Swedish spies abroad and that kind of thing. So it's possible that Russia knows everything that Sweden's been doing for the Last ten years. Well, what's what, what's worrying about this is that not only might uh, Russia know a lot about what Sweden's been doing for the last um, for the last ten years, but it might also know um, have information that is relevant to Sweden's foreign partners um, within Five Eyes, you know, the, the the sort of Anglo-Saxon spy network, but also other countries that Sweden cooperates with. So these guys, they had regular contact with um, a 
um, with a contact at the uh, from the Russians called who they knew as Rusky, and they were paid in dollar bills, which apparently they found very hard to get rid of because um, in Sweden nobody everyone's very suspicious of large amounts of cash. But these guys they deny the allegations against them, and it'll be interesting to see how much we get to hear about this because the um, much of the case will be heard behind closed doors. We don't know why they did it, but the the prosecutors say they have a view, but they are not going to make that public. Okay, so all very secretive. Absolutely. Um, Now we're going to turn to a newspaper article in Svenska Dagbladet that shone a light at the weekend on what was happening behind the scenes when Ulf Kristersson was trying to put together his government. And I started reading this article late on Saturday night thinking it would just take a couple of minutes, not realising that it was an absolute monster read. And I know that you read it too, Richard. What can you tell us about it? Um, Well, it's by uh, Maggie Strömberg or Torbjörn Nilsson. They're a husband and wife team and they they cut their, they made their name on Focus, this uh, news magazine. So they they sort of made their name writing these long weekend reportage and they're Kind of the the some the political journalists to watch in Sweden, I think, and uh, their podcast Politiken is highly recommended because Torbjörn Nilsson has this encyclopedic knowledge of political history, but and Maggie Strömberg is a real geek on what goes on behind the scenes in all the different parties and who are the kind of you know the tier you don't see. What what was surprising from from this, or perhaps not not surprising at all, really, was that the talks were a lot more difficult than anyone could see on on the surface. Mm. So all, the four parties did a brilliant job of stopping all leaks coming out. But what, what came out is, um, so for example, when Ulf Christensen was given the job of forming a new government, this Sundering's updrag, he told the press, you know, negotiations are going very well and everything like that. And apparently at the point that he said that, for four whole days, the Sweden Democrats had cut off all contact on every single level and they had no idea if they were going to come back to the table at all. I mean, presumably they assumed that they would. Meanwhile, all the political commentators on television were saying, well, when there are no leaks, that's a really good sign. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A cohesive (laughs) unit. (laughs) So, I mean, that was what was, I thought, really amazing is that that the Sweden Democrats played that kind of hardball right at the beginning, which is what you would do, presumably, if you're in their position. But um, I suppose what else is interesting is, is, is how much the talks were really just between the Sweden Democrats and the moderates and the extent to which the Christian Democrats and Liberals were just bit players. It turns mm. out that since February, the group leaders of the Sweden Democrats and the Moderates had been holding secret talks, and they had even drawn up a draft agreement of how uh, they would work together. And the other parties weren't involved at all until the summer, <laughs> when they were mm. presented with a kind of fate accompli of these six areas that they were going to cooperate on. But the moment the election started and they got back to the table, the Sweden Democrats looked at what the moderates were then proposing and said, and especially on the budget, apparently they had agreed in February that the Sweden Democrats would have equal influence over the budget of all the other parties. And in the sort of starting point for negotiations, it said that they would be able to comment. And that's when they kind of said, nah, this isn't going to happen. We're just going to, you know, you can't, you can't try and... St- pull that one on us. And that's when they dropped out And that's when they dropped out for four, four mm. months. And the other thing that I found really fascinating is that it didn't get any better. I mean, so even when Ulf Christensen got an extra two weeks to do this, uh, to form, make this agreement, you would have assumed they'd got some of the stuff over the line. But according to this article anyway, even at that point, they hadn't even started discussing policy at all, or which parties would be in the coalition, they were still gummed up on the question of who would be the speaker. And that had blocked 
everything. <laughs> the Sweden Democrats have said we're not going to talk about anything until we've got that agreed. So this decision to go to like a, a country manor was a last throw of the dice almost. Exactly. And and according to the article, when Henrik Winger, who's the group leader of the Sweden Democrats, before they even went to this country mansion, the Tider mansion, he was saying that we're going to vote them down in Parliament. We're going to take it right to the end. We're going to vote them down in Parliament and then they will come back with their tails between their legs and, and accept what we want. Mm. Uh, but it seems like at this mansion, as presumably the moderates hoped, that unlocked everything because they were spending so much time together that gradually those fixed positions kind of loosened up. And supposedly uh, you're drinking a lot of whiskey. Yeah, as well. Presumably exactly. a lot of drinking was involved. So, so just a bit about the mansion. It's the former house of Axel Oxenquiner, who was pretty much the guy who, who set up Sweden's administrative system. He's this kind of, he was a chancellor of Sweden and he, he sort of set up the sort of system of sort of agencies and sensed men and everything. And, uh, but we're anyway, talking in the 1600s here. And w when they were there, I suppose the thing that really strikes out is that there's this claim that Johan Persson, who's famous for sort of being a sort of having a good time, a man who knows how to have a good time, that there was a talk that he uh, was drinking whiskey with Henrik Winger, who's the Sweden Democrat group leader, until past 7am. But the way it's written is a bit confusing, actually, because someone pointed out that it might not have said that. Going back to the idea that this was really a deal between the moderates and the Sweden Democrats, in the text it says that Per Clareus, who's a sort of powerful behind-the-scenes moderates, and Gustav Jellebrandt, who's a, a powerful Sweden Democrat, they were the ones who unlocked it, and they left the house and went to this kind of motorway hotel and went through the migration section, and then they all agreed, they finally agreed on everything. And for the first, they went, they got through this idea of this our sociality clause. So the Sweden Democrats have been insisting that you could be deported from Sweden if you were antisocial. And they switched that to this, this brist under vandal, which was this other... Like immoral behaviour or something. Yeah, exactly. And that was all based on, we've spoken about it before, that was based on the fact that this brist under vandal clause used to exist until the 1980s when it was abolished because it wasn't used enough. So they changed it to something that had a history of not actually being used to deport people. Exactly. And and that's what and so and and in the text it says that they've the moderates felt they had kind of pulled the wool over the Sweden Democrats' eyes in that extent because they this would never actually be used because it wasn't used before. Mm. So maybe it should not be the Tierdar of Toilet and it should be the random motorway hotel of toilet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Scandic the what was it, motel no? of toilet. <laughs> I mean, to, to, to be a bit cons conspiratorial, who do you think this account of the negotiations benefits? Is, is it not useful for the Sweden Democrats to make it known, to let it be known that they held out right to the last minute and really put pressure on the moderates before they signed the agreement, before they, before they agreed to go ahead and support the government? Because as a party that's always traded on its reputation as an outsider, it sort of has to make it clear that it's not... That, that it didn't give in too easily on, on, on all of these points. I mean, how, what, do you, what do you think the... Who do you think benefits from this? I mean, I think, I think it benefits the Sweden Democrats for the reasons you outline, and I think it benefits the moderates because it makes them look like the power players. The people it doesn't m benefit at all are the Liberals and Johan Persson, who looks like a complete pushover. Also Ebba Bush, really. <laughs> it makes Ebba Bush look a little bit like... It makes Ebba Bush look like a non-entity. Yeah. As you said at the beginning, Richard, these are very respected journalists, but they have the, the methodology has been called into question a little bit. Can you 
Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the editor of Dorgan's New Hitter, Peter Volodarsky, he questioned whether, he said, which other publication would publish something like this? A long, entirely anonymously sourced account of something that happens behind the scenes. The point, the point is you can't verify it because they haven't disclosed their sources. At the same time, you wouldn't have got this level of detail from people who were prepared to go on the record. So it's a question you've just got to decide whether you trust the journalists or not. And, and it's entirely, you know, the, the, the veracity of the stories um, is, is, is sort of based entirely, the credibility of the story is based entirely on their own reputations. It doesn't mean it's not a good read, though. No, it's a great read. It's, it's a great definitely a good read. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, let's move on. Um, Sweden received criticism this month from independent experts appointed by the UN to advance racial justice and equality. After a five-day visit to Sweden, the delegation said it was deeply concerned by Swedish authorities' reluctance to collect data on race, which it says is necessary to fight systemic racism. And as our columnist David Crouch wrote in a really excellent article that we link to in the notes, this is not a new development. The European Commission, for example, has also urged Sweden to collect equality statistics to combat discrimination. Let's look now at what the research says on this. Sayaka, first of all, what are these equality statistics? What kind of data do the UN and the European Commission want Sweden to collect? So they're specifically asking for self-identification data about race or ethnicity. Um, some people talk about skin color. Um, in the Swedish context, for example, you can talk about anti-discrimination law. Swedish anti-discrimination law um, defines seven grounds of discrimination, which is sex, gender identification, ethnic identification, religion or belief, um, handicap or sexual orientation, and age. So that kind of statistics can be part of the equality data. So. Um, Sweden have taken away the word race from anti-discrimination law in 2009. So when you think about equality data in terms of anti-discrimination law in Sweden, race is actually not a category. For purposes of comparison, how are these statistics compiled in other countries, countries like the UK and the US compile these, for example, other other countries, and how do they compile them? So I think, the, like you said, the... Countries that are well known to collect these kind of data is the English-speaking countries like the U.S., U.K., Canada, and these are done through census. Um, so you self-identify. There's normally a check a box category, so you're presented with a set of categories that you belong to, or you may or may not identify with, but you 
identify yourself as. And it can be done also through like different organizations or institutions, like university may collect data on their students, um, the U.S does it, you know, and you can definitely see like on each university's website, like how many percentage is Asian, Black, um, Latino. So yeah, basically it's done in a self-identification matter. It, it should never be a forced thing to answer. So that's the basic idea of equality data. And I forgot to say, for example, like you could have um, equality data on national minorities, for example. So there are five groups in Sweden today, including Sami and Finnish speaking population. Or again, like I said, um, it can be based on skin color or race or racial identification. And then in the US, there are also discussions about whether you should actually have two different kinds of self-identification. So how you identify yourself as, and also how you are identified as from others, which is two different questions, right? Because you can claim to be belong to one ethnicity or racial group, but then you might be identified as something else in, mm. in wider society, especially for mixed uh, multiracial, multiethnic persons. This is a really relevant question. We'll come back to you again in a, in a minute, Sayaka, to talk about why these um, statistics can be so important. But first, whenever this issue comes up in Sweden and also in places like France and Germany, voices emerge expressing fears that gathering sensitive information like this could lead to the creation of databases that could be used against minorities. Can you, James, explain the history of this and why Sweden is so opposed? Well, you've got to look at which racial groups faced persecution or which racial groups were most prominent in Sweden. Sort of, um, minority ethnic groups were most prominent in Sweden up until relatively recently, up until the most recent waves of migration. And, and then we're talking about Sami, Jews and Roma. And these are groups that have long been persecuted in Sweden, often groups that are not immediately visible. It's not, it's not necessarily a question... Of, you know, people looking different, having different skin colour, but they have a, they have a different um, racial and ethnic identity to the majority population. And there's a history of the authorities using registration as a way of identifying these groups, not always to help them, but at times to, to effectively persecute them. So the, this idea that, you know, you, you, um, you collect data about Roma, for example, there have been instances throughout the 20th century of, of the Swedish state collecting data about Roma and then using it, then that data being used by, by authorities to discriminate against Roma in, um, when awarding housing, for example. But during the pre-war period or during, and, and during the Second World War, you were able to get an Aryan certificate if you wanted to have anything to do with Germany. For instance, if you wanted to marry a German, the Swedish state would issue you with a certificate proving that you were an Aryan so that you could do business, get married or whatever in, in Germany. That was a, a, an instance of registering race for purposes that are completely contrary to the, to, to, to the purposes that we're talking about here. But that's part, of, that's part of the history of it. Most recently, we had a, a scandal in 2013 in Malmö where the police were registering Roma. They were, they were keeping a secret register of Roma and linking that to and linking that to criminal activity. So you know there is a there is a there is a strong tradition of not registering race. There is a, well, there are laws against registering race, and they are and and they are there for good reason. But but it's coming from a very different perspective to um, to what we're talking about now. And these these two principles are sort of uh, are clashing with each other. Mm. And there are shameful episodes in Sweden's history, like the Race Biology Institute. And then of course you, you've you've got you've you've got the Race Biology Institute, which which effectively was 
was looking at uh, racial groups, particularly the Sami, doing things like measuring skulls to try and identify physical racial features that could be ascribed to a particular ethnic group. And um, and you know the Sami the Sami were under were for, for many many decades um, persecuted by majority society in Sweden. I think there's a important clarification to make here that there is a big difference between the state deciding which race you fall into and the state saying, hey, we're going to collect voluntary data on race. You can self-define if you want, but it's not mandatory. Well, I agree. And I think there's a, a the thumb rule of equality data is that it's self-reporting, it's anonymous, and that it cannot tr- be traced back to the individual. And I think this is really important to point out because there there is a huge misunderstanding about equality data and conflating of the registered data. And uh, talking about census, um, uh, Sweden had a census, the last census, I think it was in 1990. And the new government is, you know, talking about like a new census. So that's going to be really interesting. But I also want to say that data can always be used in a negative way and positive way. So there's whatever data you collect, there are ways that you can misuse. And it is true for equality data as well. If you want to use it in a wrong way, you can do it. It's the same with the existing registered data. If you want to argue for, let's say, non-Western European immigrants, or if you want to argue for some kind of like segregation, um, income gaps, you, you can always use these data in a negative way. I mean, we see that now with the with the Utrikesfed category, which is the only category that Sweden really has when talking about immigrants or people of immigrant background. What does that mean, um, Becky, Utrikesfød? What, so what sort of statistics are those? So Utrikesfød literally means born outside of the country. Anybody who is born in another country is counted as Utrikesfød or born abroad. doesn't look at the birth, land or citizenship of the parents. Um, but importantly, it also only counts people who have a person number in Sweden. So it doesn't apply to asylum seekers. They're not included in this statistic because they're not in the population register. And we've seen during the election that Utrikas Ferd was used as a scare statistic in some way of saying, look how many foreigners there are in Sweden. Like when we saw Yumi Orkerson doing this on, on SVT in the lead up to the election, he was talking about how many Utrikas Ferd people had, had been given a residence permit in Sweden before the election. It's a good database to understand inequality. Let's say income level, educational level, where you live, unemployment rate, for example, is always um, interesting to look at. If Sweden want to talk about racism and discrimination, then this is not a good basis because it's only information about citizenship, reasons for migration, and the country of origin, which may or may not match with how you identify yourself as racially and ethnically, or even uh, religion-wise. So if we dig into it a little bit, so going back to the UN group's visit to Sweden that we mentioned earlier, the head of the group, Yvonne Mokoro, said after the trip that the collection, publication, and analysis of data disaggregated by race or ethnic origin in all aspects of life, especially regarding interactions with law enforcement and the criminal justice system, is an essential element for designing and assessing responses to systemic racism. Sweden needs to collect and use this data to fight systemic racism. What is it that makes these data so important in the fight against racism? So independent of like whether it's an issue of racism or sexism, you need data to be able to 
say something about it first, whether there is a is racism, and then also if you want to ad- address and redress racism, then you need to follow the statistics over time. So for that purpose, I think it's very important to have data. And then you can, you know, have a discussions about what kind of data is relevant. And some may say that the current registered data is enough to understand. And some may say that uh, equality data that you are able to identify yourself, your racial and ethnic background or religious background is important. I think this is also tied to the question of whether Sweden really believe that there is structural racism and that you want to address it and you want to, you know, amend it, counter it, redress it. It's really tied up to that question. I mean, I normally say that the level of gender equality that Sweden have achieved today would not be possible if there was no statistics about sex. And now we see increasing discussions about sexual identification or gender identification, right, which is, you know, a separate thing from sex. So then, so it's a similar discussion that you can have. So is country of origin enough? Do we need to have statistics about how you actually identify yourself as? I think, again, this also goes back to what you were mentioning about how do people identify you? And for example, like today, um, Bro uh, have a statistics about hate crimes, and that can be reported on the basis of Afrophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, anti-Roma, um, anti-Sami. So these are also like something that you self-report, right? That this abuse was coming from the fact that you were identified as black. So these statistics uh, help understand what kind of hate crimes that they are. So this is, you know, one of the ways that if Sweden have a wider equality data, you can actually look at uh, the patterns of racism. And you could also compare that with the patterns of inequality based on uh, countries of origin or citizenship that the registered database can provide. Does it make a difference that Sweden removed race as a concept in Swedish legislation? It does matter. I mean, this is one of the points that the UN, for example, is criticizing at many years that Sweden have taken the word race or law specifically away from all kinds of legislation. So that, like I said, in 2009, it was taken away from anti-discrimination law. And in 2014, it was um, eliminated from almost all legislation unless it was deemed um, relevant. So th- there are some parts of legislation that kept the word like skin color and race, but it's very rare. If you don't specify it in the law, then of course, maybe the country don't think that there is a need um, to measure and follow up that specific aspect. And I think it's kind of interesting discussion, okay, which word, which language should you use? Because I argue in my work that to talk about both race and ethnicity is very important because race is something more system systemic. Race is about the, the structures of hierarchy um, and privilege that you have in society, while ethnicity is much more personal. It's 
about culture. So what does when you talk about discrimination and racism, what does ethnicity say? If you are walking down the street, people will probably see that I am Asian, but people would not be able to identify that I'm Japanese. I personally have the experience of, you know, people mistaking me for being adopted, and then they then presume that I'm ethnically Swedish, right? Going back to the question of, you know, how you identify yourself as and how you are identified as in terms of racism and discrimination, I think it's both relevant, but how you are identified as question has much more impact on your life. Identity internally, of course, it has an impact on you. If you experience discrimination all the time, racism all the time, that will also establish your sense of identity, racial identity, right? But I think it's really important to understand that it's two different things. It was really interesting looking back at the, the the stories that we did when they removed the last vestiges of race from legislation, that the way um, the integration minister spoke about it, you know, he was like, we know from, we know that different human races actually do not exist. This is a very common argument against using the word race, right, that there is no biological race. But today, at least among researchers, and also I think in general, there is a consensus that there is nothing called biological race unless you're talking about like dogs, cats, mm. plants, species. species, right? And um, but the thing is that, like I said, if you understand race as something that is socially constructed, socially created to maintain the hierarchies between people, then it is socially real and it is manifested in a way that you are treated differently because you look different from the majority of the population in the country. And this happens everywhere. It's not just Sweden. It's not just U.S. It happens in Japan. It happens everywhere. And there are also racism against, like, what the West would perceive as the same racial group, right? Like, for example, in Japan, like, there are racism against Koreans, or Chinese in Africa, like South Africa, there are racism against other Africans. And this is still racism because you categorize, you perceive that person, black person or that Asian person to be different and you categorize them in a box called Asian or black and then you act upon it. That's what racism is. I think that's really important to point out that, you know, we all know that it's not about biological race, but there is race is real for those who are racialized because they have their daily experiences of being treated differently because of the skin color, because of the way they dress, because of the religion they uh, signal. Before we started talking, uh, we were talking about how Sweden's kind of unique because of the speed with which the population has changed. It's true that the Swedish population uh, have changed very rapidly. The um, demography of Sweden have changed so much in the past um, 50 years. In my research, I talk a lot about colorblindness. Racial colorblindness is that is an ideal that you should not treat people differently. You should not see differences between people, which is great as an ideal, but then it actually obscures what is happening to the people who are racialized. And I think Sweden have a very colorblind approach, taking away the word race. It's a culture of not willing to talk about difference between people that are important for individuals who live. And I think as, as time goes on, it's going to be it's going to become a more significant problem because if you look at people who are, you know, visible 
uh, racial minorities in Sweden now, most of them are foreign-born or born in Sweden to two foreign-born parents, which is also a category that Sweden keeps uh, keeps track of. Over time, you're going to have people who are third generation, fourth generation, who who are also vis- visible racial minorities, but who aren't going to be part of the statistics any longer. Yeah. Exactly. And this is what I always argued that, you know, up to up until second generation, you could track down the countries of origin because um, there are statistics. When we order statistics, then you can actually say that you want to know the country or birth of the parents of this person, this individual. But like you said, um, you know, third generation, fourth generation, then it'll be so that your parents are born in Sweden. That's how it's registered. And most likely your parents are Swedish citizens. So even if you identify yourself as Polish or English or Japanese, you you actually might disappear in the statistics. And this is also colorblind. Mm. Um, You know, everybody is Swedish. Everybody is born in Sweden. You kind of touched on this earlier, Sayaka, but does this policy of colorblindness essentially make it impossible to track structural racism? Yes. And uh, this is why um, the U.S. scholars talk about colorblind racism, right? Because if you're obscuring things, then you you cannot address it. And you believe on the surface that everything is is fine. If the statistics shows that 80% are Swedish born and Swedish citizen and within that population there are variations of, you know, income level, educational differences. I mean that that has always existed, right? So you don't you you lose that detail of like okay, what kind of Swedes? Yeah, what what racial and ethnic background does Swedish person have that you are a bit more disadvantaged and I think it's one of the things that Sweden really stress about is, for example, class, right? That um, class mm. is, of course, important, but then that that is increasingly becoming more and more racialized as well. But the language of class can actually obscure the fact that there are different kinds of class hierarchies within, let's say, working class. I mean, you can see that in the UK or the US, right? That even within the same, let's say, working class, there are hierarchies based on culture, race, ethnicity, and religion. One thing I think it's really interesting is like when I did um, studies on um, research on mixed Swedes, so multiracial, multiethnic Swedes, they were increasingly talking in terms of like hyphenated identity, which has not emerged so much in Sweden yet because there is this rigid idea of who is Swedish and who is an immigrant. And this is, I, I argue that this is connected to this, you know, statistics dividing us into like foreign born and native born, and then the idea of country of origin of you and your parents. So then inevitably, like it becomes this divide between who is Swedish and who is um, an immigrant. And as a minority and also as a majority, we internalize these ideas. That's why there are still people who are second generation who, even though they're born and raised in Sweden, they would identify themselves as like, I'm Syrian or I'm Lebanese. There is no space today in Sweden to be able to say I'm Lebanese Swedish or I'm Japanese Swedish. But when I interviewed mixed persons, I saw a light. (laughs) I saw something positive because they really claim their mixed identity and they really claim their hyphenated identity. So I am 
positive that this kind of discourse of dichotomizing the population will change. And equality data may help us forward to this more positive way of thinking about our background, that everybody can be Swedish and have different identification. Okay, Sayaka had to leave. Uh, Unfortunately, that was really, really interesting. And we're going to end this episode with a short quiz. As anyone listening last week will know, our panellists do have what it takes to be Swedish citizens (laughs) as they passed a 10-question test with flying colours. But... How can we be sure that they hadn't just done a lot of study or got lucky? We can't. So we're going to make this a regular feature to ensure they're good enough to be Swedes for life, not just for a week. And to this end, I'm now going to ask you three questions about Sweden. If you get three right, you're clearly Swedish. If you get two right, you're possibly Norwegian. And if you get get one or none right, you'll be lucky to get a tourist visa. Let's go. Are you ready? Yes. You, can yes. we, we confer? We're we going to come up with a you joint answer. You can confer again, yeah. just like last week. Very yeah. good. Okay. And yeah, question one. What year saw the introduction of the Landmark Preschool Act in Sweden, which required municipalities to provide at least 15 hours a week of free preschool education for six-year-olds? Was it 1967, 1971 or 1975? I want to say 1967. It feels like... Uh, it's been around for a long, long time. Do, I you know, mean, you know, do, you, do you know my thought process here? Is Alphonse Allberg goes to preschool. When was Alphonse Allberg written? I feel like it's 1967 because I feel like Alphonse Allberg is from like no, I think really, he, really early. I think he's, seven, he's late 70s, Alphonse Allberg. Okay, well, so then, then it could be any of them. Okay. It's pretty tricky. I'm going to guess with one of the 70s. 17. Go, go, let's go for the middle one. So James has gone for 67, yeah? Yeah. James is 67. Okay, I'll go for years. 75 then. I'll go for 75. We'll have one each. Okay, so Becky's, Becky's 71, Richard's 1975. The answer is 1975. Well done, Woo! Richard. This was the first piece of legislation on preschools that laid the foundation for the system Sweden has today and it was part of a raft of reforms around that time that were all partly aimed at getting more mothers into the workforce at a time when Sweden was struggling with a labour shortage. Great question two. Which of these Swedish artists is most associated with modernism? Sigrid Jartén, Eva Lövstedt Åström, Maria Röhl. I haven't heard of any of them. <laughs> I'll say the Sieg- I'll say Sigrid, whatever she's called. Sigrid Jartén. Oh God, this is another one where I sound like a philistine. God, I don't know. I'm, I've, I've never heard. I'm going to go not for Maria. One. I'll go for the other one that they haven't chosen. Eva Lovstedt Ostrom. James wins this one. Well, ah. Jack, thanks to my enormous encyclopedic knowledge of yeah, Swedish Yeah, one art. of Sweden's best-known artists, Sigrid Jartén, studied under Henri Matisse in Paris and won widespread acclaim for her solo show at the Royal Academy in Stockholm in 1936. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia in the 1930s and tragically died in 1948 after a botched lobotomy. Oh. Yeah. Question three. What's the biggest lake in Sweden? Is it Vettern, Vänern or Mälaren? It's Vettern. Do you mean deep or big? Vet, it, it's big. it's Vettern. Surface it's area, right? The, 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 the surface ra- area. The big round one near uh, the, the big one. <laughs> the big one. Uh, uh, I always v- mix up Vettern. Vet- the, the right answer is definitely the big one. Vettern. <laughs> I, think, I think it's Vettern. And I have to get this right, otherwise I've got zero, which is pretty embarrassing. Okay. Uh, so is that, you, you're all agreed on that? Yes. It's wrong. Oh, is it Vernon? Oh. It's Vernon. Oh, bollocks. With a yeah, surface area 
of more than 5,000 square kilometres, Vänern is not only the biggest lake in Sweden, it is the biggest lake in the entire European Union. Is it really? It is. It is. Wow. Okay, guys, I will be moving back to the UK before next episode, so it was nice knowing you. I suppose this is me tendering my resignation, uh, James. I'm very sorry. In your defence, they were pretty tricky questions this time. They were really hard. But mind you, you should have known the biggest lake. That's, that's yeah, the biggest lake. I'm surprised you didn't get that one, to be honest. Yeah. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks, as always, to our members for making this podcast possible. And if you'd like to join and get unrestricted access to The Local, you can find a discount for podcast listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. You'll also find links in the show notes to all the articles we've discussed today. Big thanks to Sayako Sanami Tangrain for joining us. Our panellists were Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul Amahani and we'll be back again with a new episode of Sweden in Focus next Saturday. Until then, take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.